If you have a phone on your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 2. We're kind of running a, a little bit late, so I may not read all of the passage, but if you have it there in front of you, I feel like for a lot of you this is a familiar story. I'm going to read part of it, but I'm going to skip a little bit too, um, because there's some stuff in Genesis 2, some stuff in Genesis 3. I hope, what? I think it went through there. Yeah. I, I love meeting with people for coffee. I've got lots of times. And um, why don't you end up with that back up here so people can come. If you, if you decide you want to meet, come up afterwards and you can get a slot and we can get some coffee. Um, all right. So, it, you know, you may have heard in, in different classes the idea that Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 are like these different accounts that then got sloppily put together. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. I actually think that what you have in Genesis 2 is kind of the zoom out, the creation of, of, God, of God, of the creation. And then in Genesis 3, it zooms in to make a particular point about how sin entered the world. So it's not a sloppy mixing together of two separate accounts. It really has a literary function. I think sometimes modern people don't give ancient people enough credit for being skilled literary artists sometimes. And, so, and sometimes we try to explain some of those things away in other ways. I don't think that makes sense. But what we're going to talk about this semester uh, is a series I like to call Gospel-Driven Relationships. Something is driving you towards relationships or away from relationships. And as we begin to talk about that, I want to understand the gospel, which in the Christian world we use that phrase gospel a lot. Here's what it means. It literally is a word that means good news. It was a word that was not a religious word in the first century when the Bible, the New Testament was written, and when that word gets used. It was not a religious word. It was a word that was normally used to announce news of some big event, often a military victory, that would change the condition of the people that heard about the news. So it was a really great word for the early Christians to say, that's exactly what's happened. The true king has won this great victory over sin and death, and that changes everything. But a lot of times we think of the gospel as like things we need to do rather than news. It's news that should change the way we live. And that's what we're going to explore this semester. Why are we going to do this series? Why are we going to take a semester to do a series on relationships? First, because it's central in the Bible. There's a great little book, I don't know if you've seen it, by Sally Lloyd-Jones called The Jesus Storybook Bible. It's, it's profound, actually. Um, and if you don't like the pictures, though I don't know why you wouldn't like the pictures, because they're awesome, there actually is a version now of the Storybook Bible without the pictures. So I guess you can feel like you're not really a kid. But of course, Jesus said that you have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom. So I don't know why you wouldn't want the Storybook Bible with the pictures. But if you don't, there's another version. All right. Um, anyway, one of the things she says in the introduction to that Jesus Storybook Bible is that the Bible is not a book of rules, but ultimately it's a love story. It's a love story. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and all that, he believed that actually the gospel, the storyline of the Bible, was the true myth. Now, he didn't mean myth like not true. He meant the true story, the true epic story that all other good stories are an echo of. 
the Bible is a love story. And in RUF, we always want to talk about the main thing that the Bible's talking about. We, we don't want to just kind of go off in some of these little peripheral intramural debates that Christians have sometimes. We really want, in your three or four years that you're going to be around Belmont and maybe be in RUF, we want you to get the main point of the Bible, right? We want to keep the main thing the main thing, right? The main thing in the Bible is relationships. It's not at the periphery. It's at the very center. Because talking about relationships is absolutely foundational for understanding ourselves and the world we live in. I would contend that the Bible offers wisdom that has been tested across time and cultures for thousands of years. It offers wisdom from the one who made us. That's the Christian contention. So what does the Bible say? In a nutshell, it's this. Now, this may shock some of you, especially if you've been raised in church. God is not enough. I know we sing a lot of modern worship songs that say that you're all I need, but God himself says he's not enough. Okay, so we're going to talk about that tonight. God is not enough, but neither are relationships with others. Everything is broken, but don't despair because God is not finished yet. That's the heart of the Bible. God is not enough, but neither are relationships with others. Everything is broken, but don't despair because God is not finished yet. Now, when we come to this study of relationships, here's the trick. We have all kinds of competing narratives at work in our hearts, at work in our world. It's hard to see how countercultural the biblical idea of relationships and sexuality truly is in our day. But I hope as we go through the semester that'll become clear. The fact is, though, there are forces that squeeze us, in particular the, the way we think about relationships, forces like consumerism. Why does that matter? Because it makes you think of everything in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Why should I invest in relationships? What good will it do? What will it potentially cost me? Will it hurt? I'm not sure I really want to do this or be a part of this, right? Individualism. Individualism. Or it really in our day what we call expressive individualism. That the meaning and the purpose of life is for me to declare who I am apart from what anybody else wants to define me as. As we're going to see, that has some real destructive effects on relationships. And it's no wonder that as expressive individualism has become the functional worldview of our world, loneliness is at an all-time high as far as academics go. Those two things are linked. And postmodernism, which says that we have no inherent identity, we're free to be whatever we choose. All of these things squeeze us in the way we think about relationships. I remember a, a, a study, it was about 15, 20 years ago, so it may not be exactly um, the same today, but it's still worth mentioning. There's a study done among junior high girls, middle school girls, asking them how they knew what to do on a date. You know what the number one answer was? Other middle school girls. Do you know what the number two answer was? television shows. 
which is a way of saying television shows and television shows mediated through other little girls, right? I don't know where you get your ideas of relationships, but I know that nobody comes to this without all kinds of ideas. And yet I think we all recognize how kind of crazy and mixed up our world is. For instance, we live in a world where a lot of the traditional views about, for instance, dating, which we'll talk about later, but you know, if, is it right for a guy to ask a girl out maybe and pay for the date? Some people would say yes, some people would say no. Here's the thing, if you ask somebody out, you don't know the answer to that question for them, you may not get another date if you answer it wrong, and yet there's no rules, right? We have all these kinds of things that make relationships difficult, all kinds of opinions about it. Now, there are things that the Bible doesn't address in specifics, but there is a lot that the Bible has to say because the Bible at its heart speaks about what does it mean to be truly human. And that's the thing, you see, the heart of relationships is always going to get us to this question of what does it mean to be truly human? What does it mean to be truly human? I put a, a quote on there from James K. A. Smith. You might be interested in thinking about that a little bit. I don't think I have time to read it. Instead, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read some of these verses and then we're going to unpack this and see what the Bible has to say about relationships, what we were made for, and the mess that sin has made of them. Genesis 2, chapter 2, start at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the name called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the, Lord, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he or it, I'm going to talk about that, will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Jump down to verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's flaming, or that's angels, right? And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, there's more to the story, but I think that's enough for us to make some of the, the points that we need to make at the beginning of this series. So here's the first thing. What's fascinating, especially if I'd read the, the beginning part of chapter two, is you get this refrain all through the story. The Lord made this and it was good. The Lord made this and it was good. Verse 15 is, is fascinating. Well, actually verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. Now that's really important. What that means is this relationships are what you made for. Think about it. This is before sin has come into the world. God and Adam have a perfect relationship. So everything that we aspire to when we sing those songs, Lord, you are all I need, all I ever want, right? When you sing those songs and you long for that, God says that's actually not enough. Because Adam had all of that in ways that you can only imagine. It, when it talks about God walking in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve hiding from him, the, the, the implication or the sense is that that was his regular practice, to walk with them, to live life together. This was perfect relationship, and yet God says it's not good for the man to be alone. What does this teach us? This teaches us that even if you have God in your life, you still need people. You know, I meet so many Christian students that seem to think that you have to be completely content with being alone before you can ever enter into a relationship, particularly dating or marriage. This is what we call hyper-spirituality. And it's actually... It, 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 at its root, it's a mistaken understanding about what it means to be human. See, Christianity 
Jesus came not just to save us so we can escape off to heaven one day. No, Jesus saves us so that we can be restored to what it means to be truly human, living in perfect relationship with God. Christians are not supposed to be weird in the sense that they're not real, right? It's not more spiritual to pretend that you don't need people in your life. The Bible comes against that. But I will tell you that a lot of Christians for a lot of centuries have kind of taught that nonsense because it just seems so spiritual. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians uh, chapter 2 talks about all these man-made rules that seem spiritual because of the way they treat the body harshly. But what Paul says is they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence because they are based on man-centered commands. So those that would tell you that the more holy you are, the more you don't need anything except God himself, they've really distorted what it means to be human. And they've come against what God himself has said because God says it's not good. Now you might say, well, what about Paul saying that it's better to be single? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that idea, but we'll get to that. So here's the first point. God said it wasn't enough for you to have God alone. So that's what I mean when I say, you know, at the heart of the Bible is God is not enough. And God himself says that. It's how the Bible opens. But next, I want to just draw out this a little bit. There are different versions of how people resist this, right? And like I said, at the root, all of these end up expressing a false view of what it means to be human. There was a, a great novelist, Walker Percy. I don't know if anybody ever reads Walker Percy anymore, but he had this great line in one of his, uh, um, one of his novels where he says, bad books always lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. My friend Steve Garber wrote an essay where he takes that and he says, this thesis of Walker Percy's is true beyond the world of novels, that bad books lie and they lie most of all about the human condition. This, this thesis is true beyond the world of novels, echoing into every area of study, every arena of human existence. This is important. Whatever you're studying, there are bad books that are going to lie to you, and they're going to lie to you mostly about the human condition. He says the same is true, um, bad economic visions always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. And the same is true for politics and painting, for biology and sociology. All across the curriculum, it is the view of the human condition which sets the terms of the debate. What we believe about who we are, our origin, nature, and destiny affects everything else. I hope that if you're here at a Christian university, that will come through. But I will tell you, you may have to do some of that work yourself. You may have to connect some of those dots yourself. You will. And I hope you will. Because God wants you to love him with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, right? Connecting dots is what the Christian vision is about. So that's true. But what are some of the ways that we lie? I told, talked about this already, the super spiritual way of lying. This is like the, the Christian super spiritual one. If I have God's love, it's all I need. 
And of course, then it's difficult to hold up marriage and singleness as good callings, as the Bible does, if you believe this. Relationships are not for those who aren't spiritual enough for God alone. Hear this. I have the authority of the Bible to declare that to you. It's true. God himself says so. But God has also made us in such a way that we are drawn toward others. Do you all know about failure to thrive syndrome in infants? It's fascinating, right? You can feed a child, provide for all its basic needs, but if you never pick it up and you never hold it and you never touch it and you never talk to it, sometimes they'll even die, right? My wife was um, showing me, what was it, the blank face um, experiment that they did up at Harvard, and you can find a video um, on YouTube. It's, it's fascinating. Basically, you take a one-year-old infant, and the mom is like looking at it and engaging, and the baby's happy, and everything's great, and it's pointing around, and then the mom turns away, turns back, and just a blank stare. It doesn't take but two minutes for the baby to be freaking out, right? And in quite a lot of distress, because we were made for relationships. It's basic to who we are. So there's the super spiritual vision version that you don't need relationships. It's not true. But there's also the hardened cynics version. And my wife pointed this out to me. We went and saw Little Women. If you haven't seen Little Women, I just don't know if there's much hope for you. You need to go, <laughs> you really need to go see this movie. Yeah. It's true. Oh, man, I haven't cried that much in a movie in a long, long time. And what's fascinating is, I don't know if you saw the trailer, a lot of people were nervous when they saw the trailer because the trailer um, cuts this significant quote, cuts out the last part. The trailer says this, um, this is Joe in Little Women. The trailer has this, women have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts. They've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty. I am so sick of people saying that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. That's where the trailer stops. When you watch the movie, there's a little more to that quote. And here's what, see, a lot of people would just stick with the quote the way the trailer said it. And that's how they're living their life. I don't need anything. As long as I can, you know, pursue my dreams and whatnot, I don't need anybody. I don't want to be demeaned. And even, you know, when you read this, the woman was called to be a helper, and I know a lot of that bristles, right? It might help to know that that word outside of this Genesis context is always used of God, who is a helper to Israel. So it's not a demeaning term at all, even though I know throughout kind of Christian history sometimes it's been used in a demeaning way. It's not what it actually means. But here's the thing. That hardened cynic's view, and this is what Little Woman is so great at, like there's more to it. She's more to it. She says, I'm sick of it, but I'm so lonely. So lonely. I love it because that's real. That's the reality, right? Don't put me in this little box, but if all I'm about is expressive individualism, I'm just going to make something of myself and my world, I'm going to be so lonely. You can't escape it. Um, there's a John Hyatt song. I don't know if you guys know John Hyatt. It, to me, he's one of the most profound singer-songwriters ever. Um, Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson both sang John Hyatt songs. There's not many songwriters that have been covered by those two guys. He's got this song called Slow Turnin' that says, um, 
Life is short, and here's the damn thing about it. You're going to die. You're going to die for sure. You can learn to live with love or without it. But there ain't no cure. There's just a slow turning from the inside out. A slow turning, but you learn to come around. You can learn to live with love or without it, but there ain't no cure because it's built into the human condition. C.S. Lewis captured this dilemma so well. Maybe you've heard these words. He said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. I tried to live that way a long time. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. So we see that we're made for relationships. We also see that we're made for beauty. When you look at Adam's words. So God knew it was not good for man to be alone, but man didn't know. Do you see how God, there are some things that God tells you, and there are other things that he has to bring you into an experiential understanding of. When God tells Adam, name all of the animals, what is he doing? What is he doing? He's bringing Adam to the realization that, as the scripture says, for Adam, there was no suitable helper found. And what happens when God makes a suitable helper for Adam. Poetry. The first recorded speech in the Bible is poetry. Adam takes one look at her and he says, Ah, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The great hymn writer William Cooper actually thought that before sin entered the world that all human speech was poetry. That, that when you speak in poetry, in beautiful language, beautiful words, you're actually tying back into what we were originally made for. That speech was to be used in, in a beautiful way like that. I don't know if that's true, but it seems to make a lot of sense. Now, for some of you, you may think, well, that's kind of strange. Like, Christianity does not embrace passion and romance, does it? Like, all that stuff is, like, not really Christian. It's not true. Right? In this, in this passage, beauty matters. Adam is taken with her beauty. They're also taken with the beauty of the trees. They're pleasing to the eye. God didn't have to make a world that was beautiful. God didn't have to create taste buds. Why do you have taste buds? I, I love this quote. There used to be a, a chocolate shop over in Germantown. It passed away. It went away. It's unfortunate. <laughs> I still have the t-shirt, but, but they, they had this great little motto when you walked into the, into the little chocolate shop, um, chocolate is proof that God created us for pleasure. That's my, that's my view, and I'm sticking to it. 
But do you think of Christianity as embracing the kinds of passion that would make somebody break out in song? I used to hate musicals. I still kind of don't get musicals, but I feel like that's a deficiency in me. I do, because there are, there are things that should make us break out in song, right? And so, anyway, there you go. All right, but, but here you go. Relationships with others are not enough either. And perhaps, you know, you're one to say, well, I don't know about all that God stuff. I'm just going to find community with my friends, and that's going to be enough. Here's the problem. Human relationships are insufficient. They crush and they break when we try to hang too much on them. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way. He said, you know, imagine going to a job every day that you can't possibly do. It's one thing to go to a job that you're way overqualified for. It's boring. But to go to a job that you know you can't possibly do the work you're asked to do is hell. Relationships are not made to carry the weight of all of life. They're just not. Uh, Tim Keller has a great book called The Meaning of Marriage, which I highly recommend to you. And he says this, never before in history has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they are seeking in a spouse. And, 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 and in some ways, maybe the online dating thing promises that technology will help you to find that soulmate. Well, even the idea of a soulmate, one who can satisfy every longing that you have, sexually, relationally, romantically, is really beyond what relationships with other humans are meant to bear. So it's not enough to have God alone, but it's also not enough to have just people. You were made to be in relationship with God and others, and you miss what it means to be truly human without both of those things going on. All right, but sin has made a mess of everything. As Bob Dylan said so well, everything is broken, right? And the vertical, the relationship with God, always is reflected in the way we relate to other people, right? The way you relate to God will always manifest itself in your relationships with others. If you look at Genesis 3, you see that the relationship with God drives every other relationship. When Adam and Eve disobey God, it brings blame shifting and fear, not towards God alone, but even toward each other. It, it makes a mess, not just of their relationship with God, where they're naked and they hide. And, and I hope you hear the heartache in that. The heartache in that. They were, they're hiding from the one who made them, the one who loves them. And, and they're, they're hiding behind fig leaves. And you should know that the fig leaf is this huge um, leaf in the Middle East, the fig that's talked about here, but it has huge holes in it. It's a really apt picture of, of what we do when we try to hide. The hiding doesn't really work very well. You should also know this, though. When God asks questions, he never asks questions because he's trying to find out the answer. He's always asking questions for us to reflect on where we are. He knows where they are. He knows where they are, but do they know where they are? He wants them to begin to understand how much of a mess turning away from the one who made them has made, not just with their relationship with him, but their relationship with other people. And so he says, you know, who, who you know, did you eat the fruit? And what, is, what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me. So it's ultimately blaming God. 
But of course, what was the real basis? What was the real problem? The real problem is they doubted God's goodness. You see, it's subtle, but it's there. When, when Eve says to the serpent, we're not allowed to eat of that fruit, but we're also not allowed to touch it, she thinks that God is being more restrictive than he actually is. Because God never said you can't touch it. You're already getting just a little hint in the way Hebrew stories reveal things that they're thinking God is holding out the good stuff. That's always at the basis of sin and rebellion, is that God is holding out on us. But it makes a mess of everything. You see, actually, the way this plays itself out when God talks about how this curse that sin has brought is going to play out. And it's this fascinating thing. He tells the woman that your desire will be for your husband, and it, or he, remember I said that, in the Hebrew, that third person singular can either be it or he. And actually, I think it's ambiguous on purpose, because in some relationships between men and women, you see a desire for the, the woman to dominate, in others, to be dominated. In other words, your desire will dominate you to where you'll put up with anything. In other cases, your desire to rule will. The point is, where there was going to be mutual working together to bring out all the God-glorifying potential that he built into this creation, now there's tension and fighting and trying to get a leg up on each other. So it's a mess. It's a mess, right? And, and this is what happens. You know, we get these two competing demands. And, and, and you'll see it in, in all of your relationships, I suspect, sort of going back and forth between over-dependence and independence. And, and, and sometimes try, trying to figure out how do we make all this stuff work. We're trapped by two competing demands particularly in this world that we live in right now. We long for community because it's what we're made for, but we refuse to give up our freedom and independence, which makes real community impossible. And it's not a mere coincidence that in a culture that idolizes freedom, loneliness is epidemic. Peter Berger, sociologist, retired now from Boston University, says this, to the extent that we are free from others, we are also alienated from them. And that's this dilemma we long for community, but we also want to be free to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And the, and the culture says both of these things are, are desirable, but they can't work together. Well, it doesn't take long for Adam and Eve to feel how broken everything is. Um, but the good news is that God comes to the rescue. And before we end, we have to see that. See, even though we're like, if you imagine what it was like to be Adam and Eve, you had this beautiful relationship, and then... <laughs> It becomes this difficult, messy relationship of blame shifting and fighting and devouring one another. You might be tempted to think, like, I'm just, I'm done. Like, I'm out of here. I know this is a garden. It doesn't feel like a garden anymore. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go find some other. It's like um, there's another story of, uh, you know, Abraham and uh, Lot and their herdsmen are fighting. And they're like, all right, look, you, you, you go that way. I'll go this way because we just can't get along. Um, but what do we see? We see God pursuing them. So even though we're tempted 
at times to say, man, relationships are just so difficult, filled with so much heartache. Listen, the best gifts always can end up being the most powerful idols and the way that real pain can happen. But God says, don't give up. He pursues Adam and Eve, even in their hiding. He makes a provision to cover their shame. He himself makes skins of animal for clothing for them. Notice something had to die for them to be clothed. There's a hint already of what is ultimately going to come, but we see this even more clearly in Jesus, because ultimately our hope for relationships is that God has not given up on pursuing a relationship with us no matter what the cost. And that's Genesis 3.15. You, Adam and Eve, have joined together with Satan, the serpent, against me. You've put enmity between me and you. But you know what? I'm not going to let that stand. What what God says in Genesis 3.15 is I'm going to put enmity where you tried to put peace. I'm going to break this alliance for your good. I'm not going to let you keep eating of this tree and live forever in this condition of alienation from me. You're going to have to be banished. And the only way back in to the garden and the tree of life is for someone to go under the sword. And Jesus is that someone. This is why the book of Revelation, you come back to a tree. The tree at the center of of the garden at the city in the book of Revelation. God has never given up his plan to have this beautiful relationship with his people where they can be together in the cool of the day, in the richest, almost unimaginable kind of fellowship except after sin has entered the world, someone has to endure the most extreme relational rupture that you could ever imagine for that restoration to happen. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what the cross was about. Jesus endured relational rupture like you and I can't even imagine. He'd never known what it was like to not have perfect loving relationship with his father. Listen, when they beat him, when they put a crown of thorns on his head, he didn't cry out at all of that. Do you know when he cried? When he cried out, was on the cross, and he says, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The relational rupture is what broke his heart. And he would do it again. My friend Scott Rowley used to say he would rather die than live without us. I don't care how afraid you are, how wounded you be. I do care. But don't let it be a barrier to finding the love of God that can set you free to reach out to others, to let others in. The shattered relationship. This is our last quote. The shattered relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship ever suffered more than what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit endured when Jesus hung on a cross and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be the rejected son 
so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to become the forsaken friend so that we could have loving relationships. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the semester unpacking and connecting dots. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing the doxology.